0: Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with performance and how to improve the human experience. Twice a week, I explore the latest science, technology, and tactics with experts in various fields of human optimization. I'm your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Superhumans. In early November 2019, I had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Los Angeles, California. Not only was the weather amazing, but I, on three separate occasions, went into the Peak Brain Institute. I had electrodes strapped to my head. I was playing video games with my brain. And today is a result of some of those visits. My conversation today is with Dr. Andrew Hill, and the topic that we're going to go really deep on is neurofeedback. Dr. Hill is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research on attention and cognition. He's the founding director and lead neurotherapist at the Peak Brain Institute. And he sat down with me for this interview. During this time together, we went through exactly why somebody would want to get a brain map done. We talked about neurofeedback. We went through the results of my brain mapping, which frankly made me a little vulnerable in the moment. We talked about an impact of a longer term. We talked about the longer term impact of a concussion that I had and we got into how Really, brain training can help optimize not only things like sleep and anxiety, but also focus, attention, and performance. The show notes for this one are com slash peakbrain, and enjoy my conversation with Andrew Hill. Andrew, Dr. Hill. Hi there. So- let's start things off with just a general question. Neuroscience, mm. brain maps, West African drumming. Mm. How did you get into the latter?
1: The latter, the, the West African drumming? Yeah. Um, I'm sort of part of a, an ecstatic tradition from the Northeast, uh, you know, group of, I don't know, <clears throat> several thousand people who meet on the mountaintop a few times a year and drum until they you know, fall over and have a transformative cognitive experiences, essentially. So uh, for maybe 25 years, I've been doing drumming and dancing and ecstatic work in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think it's that different from science. You know, it's all exploration of reality, essentially. I mean, that's what shamanism is. It's mm-hmm. pushing your mind hard enough that you have a shift in your perspective of reality, come back to ground with new information, essentially. So it's a different way of exploring, you know, human experience and more subjective reality in this case. So. So West African drumming
0: came after the neuroscience?
1: Other way around, actually. I mean, well, I mean, it's all intertwined, right? I mean, you know, I'm pushing 50 years old and probably about half of my life ago, I got into both those things. Okay. Um, But I I, uh, worked in uh, human services for many years. I worked with folks who were uh, multiply disabled in residential facilities, blind, deaf, deaf, nonverbal CP, autism, et cetera, Mm -hmm. really severe, you know, institutionalized people who are moved into sort of group home situations. And, um, I ended up going from there to working in psychiatric hospitals. Mm-hmm. Again, more cognitive, sort of, you know, seeing how the edge cases of humans, if you will, how, how our regulatory features fall over, how developmental things fail, um, and then uh, at the same time, I was getting deeper into the health and human services thing. I was doing my own personal exploration on mountaintops with fires and drums, and, yeah. you know, and those things both inform my perspective on what the mind and the brain, you know, are and, and and how we can optimize and how they fall over and you know what happens there. So,
0: okay, so. I'm going to come back to this because it seems like you had a shift from dealing with these sort of frontier cases and autism and mm-hmm. everything to what you're doing now a little bit. But let's go to your brother and how he influenced mm. you getting into this field because I'd love to hear more about oh, why he sure. chose neuroscience.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was always one of those, you know, kids who were, had to know how things worked. So I would probably get, you know, into the weeds on something. But, um, my, when my brother was in about fifth grade, I think, uh, I grew up in, uh, the Boston area, South of Boston and, um, we have blizzards there. Yeah. You know, and I, I grew
0: up in Philadelphia. So, so I you know understand. That's We're like, sitting yeah. here in
1: Southern California. And it's yeah. like, you know, 70 degrees here in the mm-hmm. end of December, end of November or so. But, um, There was a blizzard, and I was shoveling snow, and my younger brother was sledding up and down behind the house and sledded out into the street. Mm -hmm. and got hit by a car, and got got pinched between a car and a tree. Actually, with this little plastic sled, and ended up in a coma for uh, you know eight nine weeks. Had a pretty significant brain injury at the frontal right sort of temporal parietal junction. um, So the the the, sorry the frontal temporal junction, and uh, ended up having a lot of sort of difficult experience coming back from that and re- physical rehab and cognitive things. But, you know, as a, a fairly young person myself, I was struck by the sort of sudden change in cognitive status and in, in his, you know, awareness from a fairly small, you know, a little area of his brain that was a couple centimeters by a couple centimeters in the right front area mm-hmm. was damaged. And that produced this massive shift in, you know, what he could do. Obviously he was un- unconscious for weeks and weeks at that point. So that, um, you know, drew my attention to how sort of fragile this regulatory, you know, system is. I'd already been working in health and human services and seen some of the breakdown, the really severe breakdown, and so I started um, uh, moving more into psychiatric hospitals and crisis work and seeing mm-hmm. how people ended up, you know, moving into those extreme and coming out of those extreme, hopefully cases. Because uh, my my brother's injury happened before, you know, I ended up in you know as an adult, and mm-hmm. that probably informed you know working with people suffering, working with brain you know stuff. But um, you know, uh, there was a happy ending in his story. He ended up, you know, going through college and having no real cognitive issues and having, you know, successful life and company and family and everything else. So he, he recovered from a pretty severe brain injury. Tends to happen the earlier in life you have a brain injury, the better you can recover from it. Um, If it's severe, you end up with, without a focal deficit, a specific deficit, if you're young, Mm -hmm. you you can end up with, with, with some lowering of overall function. If you have injuries, really severe brain injuries when you're young, but often the brain can reroute around enough if you have a severe injury when you're young. So as an elder or you know people who are you know done developing in their 20s and up, mm-hmm. an injury often causes a specific issue, a motor issue, a sensory issue, a language issue. Those are hard to recover from, but in young people, it doesn't usually stay uh, problematic unless it's a, a massive loss of tissue or something.
0: Okay, and so the older you get, the harder it is to recover. Sounds like any general injury as well, but also, there's hope, right?
1: There's absolutely hope. I mean, the pl- plasticity is a lifelong phenomenon. Even elders who are, you know, having a lot of difficulty with their cog- cognition and memory mm-hmm. are still making hundreds of new neurons in their hippocampus, uh, hippocampi every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're making probably a couple thousand neurons a day or something right now, mm-hmm. and that is uh, people are excited to hear you're still making neurons. It's a relatively new finding, you know, probably a decade or two ago. It doesn't really matter. The cells you have, the existing cells you have can remap themselves and you know, move to talk, to talk to different neighboring cells within minutes. If you went and did a piano lesson today, you don't already play piano. By the end of the day, every single cell in the hand area on your motor cortex will have moved around. And it's talking to different friends, trying to optimize the motor control and learning that you just you know, asked it for. So this really does produce learning and reorganization. And you can essentially organize that connectivity between neurons above any potential functional limit of the neurons. Meaning there's people uh, who are, have massive brain injuries and lose incredible amounts of their cortex mm-hmm. who are fine later on because the brain tissue that remains will reorganize. Mm-hmm. In adults, this massive plasticity, dramatic reorganization often doesn't happen, but it can happen. People wake up from comas having, you know, not much brain tissue left and they're fine because the brain has, you know, reorganized into very, very dense arrays of connectivity in the remaining tissue. Um, the normal range of human brain size is something between like, Uh, 800 or 600 cc's and like 2,500 cc's. Massive Mm -hmm. range of normal. Being weird is normal. It's kind of the point. But shift happens your life, uh, your whole life. You know, from very aggressive shift when you're young. Mm -hmm. the brain's overgrowing and pruning, overgrowing and pruning and there's so much plasticity that it's a little uncomfortable ask any teenager. But then you still have that plasticity for the rest of your life and you can actually do things to enhance it even after it dips down to sort of a lower adult level. Mm -hmm. Learning Uh, meditation exercise novelty neurofeedback all kinds of things can goose that plasticity and boost it pretty significantly uh, in a rapid time frame too above your day-to-day you know ability to change that's already built in and can't ever go away your brain has to change
0: okay so this is this is great but i want to go back to you and Uh sort of how you've gone from the frontier of Mm. looking at Psychiatry cases to now we're at the Peak Brain Institute yeah, yeah. here in Culver City. Sure, what made that transition happen for you?
1: Well, I mean, ultimately, um, it's not that different work. It's mm-hmm. just that I no longer only work with people who have particular diagnosed conditions, mm-hmm. and I tend to drop away from the diagnostic label here into the whatever resource you want to work on. So I still work on you know work with people who are you know, profoundly autistic or mildly autistic and have seizures and, you know, major communication issues and things. But we also also work with, you know, I would say a third of my clients are still that very severe impaired person, either mm-hmm. cognitively or developmentally impaired, major brain injuries, you know, major challenges they're working through. Probably a third of my clients, but a third are also the peak performers, you know, Ben Greenfield and you know, other sort of super high-end athletes, creatives, executives, the push the, the people who are squeezing every little bit of performance out of their body and brain. Mm-hmm. So um at the the my first foray into neurofeedback. Uh, I'd been working in for years in cri- in, in uh, long term residential, which isn't you know that exciting. People don't change that rapidly. And then in crisis acute psychiatric work where people actually were getting better, but still not that often. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more of a holding pattern in these crisis psychiatric hospitals I worked in. And then um, I get injured. Uh, fairly badly injured in the psychiatric hospital I was working. I was in charge of uh, training people on doing hands-on interventions or restraints mm-hmm. and leading the restraint teams whenever there was a crisis. And this was among the most uh, acute psychiatric hospitals in the state at the time. It's since closed probably for good reason, but it, um, we were having you know, 10, 12 emergency codes every eight hour shift around the clock wow. where people had to run, rush in and put hands on somebody who was you know at risk of harming themselves or others or everyone in sight. And we were understaffed, underfunded, and people were burnt out and undereducated. And um, I did like three restraints back to back in about 25 minutes and took a break and went to uh, recuperate on the geriatric floor and helped a nurse friend of mine lift somebody who had to be changed uh, for a, a mealtime or something and um, blew out two discs in my lower back. It's herniated profoundly, you know.
0: This is like an L4, L5 kind of thing Yeah, L4, L5
1: and L5, S1. Yeah, wow. Yeah, both of them and they were pretty severe. And I didn't walk too well for a long time. For like a good, you know, solid six months at least, and I mm-hmm. uh, spent a good, you know, year recovering from that, the acute stuff, and several years, you know, maybe even a decade or more recovering from it. But what it did was it took this active hands-on job I had in a psych hospital as, you know, you know the highest job I could get is with a sort of bachelor's degree, if you will. And Mm -hmm. then it took me out of that role completely. And I ended up working in that hospital for another year as a case manager, having my work signed off on by a master's level therapist. And because I couldn't do the hands-on work, but I had the clinical skills from having worked on the floors for years. And then the hospital closed and I had to sort of decide, well, you know, what's next. I have some human service skills. I have some high tech skills. And I went and actually got a job completely in pure high tech working in uh, CRM database development. and That, you know, that con-
0: seems a little different. <laughs> yeah, well, I,
1: I had some tech skills uh, just historically from college and things. Mm-hmm. And this was a time where I was looking for something different and I, you know, Uh, this was in the, I guess, early 90s or something. So the tech bubble was still growing and Mm -hmm. I ended up going to work for one of the big, actually at the time, a small customer relationship management company that was taking on the big people like Salesforce and Oracle and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned a lot about, you know, essentially well before marketing automation was a thing, I learned about, you know, pipelines and campaigns. And uh, I used to go into um, electricity companies because at the time the Northeast, uh, maybe maybe US-wide, I'm not sure, was deregulating um, pop power companies. Mm-hmm. And so there was all these power companies out the Northeast that had sales forces who didn't really know how to sell power because they never had to, they never had to. <laughs> and maybe the sales guys were, were brand new into sales, but been in the company for 20 years, or maybe mm-hmm. they were br- salespeople didn't actually know energy at all. Mm-hmm. So we had to go in and configure these custom CRMs to match their business models and a brand new sales process and then deploy. And so I had some fun for a couple of years doing that stuff. And then, um, Sort of a couple of things happened. I you know, got less in, you know, excited to stay in high tech, plus the tech bubble kind of corrected. Yeah. And uh, I ended up you know, looking for the next thing to do and uh, decided that I kind of missed working with people. And I went and got a job at an autism center okay. um, that happened to use neurofeedback as their primary intervention. And I'd been interested in neurofeedback or biofeedback in the brain historically, I'd been aware of it, but it was kind of a black art and expensive, and mm-hmm. you know you couldn't get trained in it really unless you went and did it with somebody which this is still kind of true um and I went and got a job in Providence, Rhode Island uh, working in this center, which still exists in the neurodevelopment center, which does a lot of autism work, and I saw suddenly people who normally in my prior experience don't change change. I saw autism actually shift rapidly in weeks. I saw ADHD go away almost every time. I saw seizures drop away. I saw, you know, language and eye contact come back sometimes in these spectrum kids. I saw, you know, major shifts in OCD and trauma and, you know, other suffering-driven qualities of these brains. And my previous 10, whatever, 15 years told me that these things weren't generally that changeable and all of our mm-hmm. best practices weren't able to move them. And then I was seeing this stuff change in weeks. I mean, it was, it was amazing and really kind of... uh flip my perspective on what was possible and after doing that work for a couple of years I went back and you know, studied uh, UCLA to get a PhD because we didn't really understand what was going on we still don't mm-hmm. it's still more of a phenomenon we manage than a discrete space we work in but it's kind of like neurofeedback is kind of like personal training it's very iterative mm-hmm. you know you get a fitness assessment done you figure out what it is you want to work on and then you iterate through trying different things but the process is so two-way I, ideally I think when done best it's two-way with the person who's training that as I developed more skills in neurofeedback, as I developed more understanding of what was happening in neurofeedback, um, I started to shift my perspective on this as a medical psychological intervention done to somebody and more into a process somebody engages in to go after goals. They observe effects, they report back what's happening. It's very iterative, the way a good personal trainer might be. Mm-hmm. But this is a bit more you know, nuanced or a bit more uh, variable than personal training. It's kind of like, you know I can measure how much bicep strength you have, but then... If you want more bicep strength, I'm not sure if you have one elbow or 17 per arm and I have to kind of try some things and mm-hmm. adjust. So it's a lot more of a hunt and peck in some ways, but the brain mapping, the, one of the assessment processes we do, which we did with you. Yeah. And then attention testing, that gives me a sense of how you're unusual. And we go after the bottlenecks. And, you know, that's the same process if I'm working with a profoundly autistic, nonverbal kid with seizures or a high level CEO making nine figures who can't wind down at night. It's exactly mm-hmm. the same process. It's always individualized. Mm-hmm. Look at your brain look at your executive function or attention performance. Um, Sometimes these kids can't do it, but that's also its own Mm -hmm. finding. And then we uh, go over your data together and try to figure out which of the things that are unusual against the population of people like you Mm -hmm. are the things that might really be the bottlenecks you care the most about. And then the neurofeedback process exercises those things up and down and makes usually permanent change in a few months. So when I was working in the neurodevelopment center in Providence, I was starting to see ADHD go away in three to six months and autism actually shift in that same time frame and was shocked. Mm-hmm. And, and we've refined our processes. I find that for many people, um, you know, making that shift from acute people into more you know, broad performers and also high performers, for me, it's really about just providing access and agency to the tech. So while most neurofeedback providers see a lot of kids and a lot of developmental issues, you know, we see some of those, absolutely. But I see as many high-level athletes as I do children. And Mm -hmm. I see as many CEOs as I do people with PTSD. Sometimes it's the same people. But, like, <laughs> it, but you know, it doesn't really matter to me so much if you have a symptom or a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, all I care about is you have a goal and that goal can be a performance you know, goal. I want to relax deeper on the starting block so I can you know, kick into action faster. Or it can be a symptom-driven goal. I want to not be traumatized by driving on the highway because that car accident I had last year. It doesn't matter to me so much. I, mean, I care about the people as individuals, but the mm-hmm. history isn't all that important. What's important is doing this sort of... Uh, screen of the likely physiological features that you want to work on Mm -hmm. and to that end i flipped the the model a little bit in neurofeedback peak brain we generally don't do a clinical history with you Mm -hmm. we we go over your brain maps sort of cold i i I have some data for you pulled up and i haven't like interviewed you or talked about anything really Mm -hmm. in terms of what you want to work on i've just looked at your attention performance and your brain map and i now have a few ideas about what it is you might be experiencing uh, as general traits, you know, high level features, and I'll you know, predict some of things that could be true for you. And if they are true, if my guesses, my hypotheses from your brain maps are true, then we believe the assessment data and go, okay, this stuff is relevant to your goals. Yeah. So it's not a diagnostic process. People often are like, well, what, what do you know about me from my brain? Well, I don't know actually anything. All I know is how unusual you are. I don't know what it means. You might know what it means. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll ask you lots of questions. Oh, this could mean X. Does that sound plausible? This could mean Y. Mm-hmm. But I joke now that... Um, if you want answers, go see a doctor, you know? If you want questions, come see a scientist. Yeah, We mostly tell you what we don't know and mm-hmm. ask you, you know, well, what about this? And have you thought about that? And could this be interesting or relevant? So the metaphor is, is, is closer to a sort of a personal trainer slash scientist at Peak Brain. Mm-hmm. And that's the only real difference, but the clients you work with are often very, very similar. The, the big difference is if someone has a deep psychiatric or therapeutic need, I can't be the only person on their team. Because mm-hmm. I have a PhD in neuroscience, not in clinical psych or medicine or anything else. I shouldn't be doing clinical-driven, symptom-focused, you know focused, curative work. But I'm happy to help you with your stress response. Mm-hmm. But if you have massive, intrusive PTSD, you probably should have a therapist as well. I'm happy mm-hmm. to help you with your... You know, uh, perseveration. But if you have life-disrupting OCD, you might want a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it just depends on what your needs are. Um, if you have a speech and language issues, an autistic kid, I don't do speech and language, you know, therapy or physical therapy, some of the brain injury or occupational therapy. But you should decide for yourself as an informed consumer. Oh, I want to take control of X and Y resource. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's engaging with systems. Oh, I got injured. Or I have a symptom. We get a diagnosis and do the medication or do the, the therapy. And sometimes it's oh, okay. I want to. Go after this stuff, like, because I have a goal. You know, you can go after your abs because you have a a, a core injury or because you want to have nice abs. It doesn't really matter from my perspective. As long as you're like, abs, okay, here's the program for abs. Mm -hmm. We don't don't have a program for abs. I'm using a body metaphor. (laughs) If we did, people would rush in. But Mm -hmm. um, we, we do have programs for like, amazing executive function, control over your attention, good listening skills, deep creativity, uh, deep awareness of your emotions. We can boost your immune system. We can drop PTSD and OCD reliably. We can eliminate ADHD in most forms of anxiety reliably.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's really a question of, well, what do you want to do with your resources? And, but it, essentially, the work we're doing is very, very similar to most good neurofeedback, assessing your brain, being very evidence-based, going back to the assessments frequently, and then just gradually moving your brain over time.
0: Let's talk about that assessment because your team here yesterday took me through a process and many people listening to this are like, this sounds great. Mm -hmm. What does, What is brain mapping? How would you explain it to somebody? Because it seems, I mean, this is the initial assessment that you work with everybody on.
1: Yeah, it takes about an hour to do an assessment at Peak Brain. And we do two things. One is what we call a brain map or a quantitative EEG, which is a resting baseline of average brain activity. Mm -hmm. We don't pick up what you're thinking or feeling. And we also don't pick up if you're tired that day or for a few days. Um, Mm -hmm. The averages are very stable. And the results of a brain map, meaning how unusual your brain is compared to average people, Um, is stable year after year. It's the same result every single time you do it unless you have major distortions from like major fatigue or an injury or medication or something. Mm -hmm. Or you make changes from things like meditation or neurofeedback or aging. Otherwise, it's the same uh, high-level feature set. But again, we have to generate hypotheses from it. And then the attention test measures how well you can perform under extremely boring conditions. Mm -hmm. I think you might agree that test was not the most exciting.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, well, first off, I was a little fatigued going into it and then going through the, the test was a little bit... Yeah, I mean, it's an attention test, right? So yeah, it's, it's supposed to
1: be difficult. tedious. What mm-hmm. we do is we flash a number on the screen, a three-inch high number, or we speak a number over the speakers, and mm-hmm. the number's either a one or a two. That's all it is. And your job is simply to click the mouse for the ones. But it's doing one trial per second. There's 440 trials, so it's like 20-plus minutes between the warm-up and the cool-down, and it's mm-hmm. really boring. One. You know, one. one, one, two. Two. And very quickly, you start to miss the ones, which is inattentive features, mm-hmm. and you click, or you click on the twos, which are impulsive response control features. And we look at ways in which you fail on the activation or inhibition. We tease apart audio versus visual, short-term errors versus long-term errors, sustained focus, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then look at the patterns of errors against other people and see if you're ADHD-like, if you have issues with sustained focus, if it's an auditory versus visual problem that's very particular. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a very valid read. Okay, here's your performance. And then the brain mapping is a bit different. Instead of valid, it's just stable. It's just, you know, it's real data, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to interpret. So for the brain mapping, we stick a cap on your head, this little swim cap uh, in one of several colors, and we squirt it full of gel, conductive gel, and measure what your brain is doing, what electricity it's producing at 21 locations. And we then take those uh, about 10 minute of recording time baselines, and we compare them to a database of people who are your age and see how unusual your brain is and then both the attention test and the brain maps are plotted on these sort of bell curves of uh, you know, population difference or z-scores, really standard deviations, essentially. And we then try to find the things that are most unusual. And if they're you know, more than a standard deviation out of range, more than an unusual you know, amount of variability against the population, it might be something interesting enough to go, hey, this thing uh, can get in the way.
0: How large is this database?
1: Depends. The um, attention population is a few thousand people. Mm-hmm. The brain mapping, depending on what we're looking at, is between a few hundred and a few thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a population-level database. So strictly speaking, we call these things Z-scores, not yeah. standard deviations. Okay. For those folks who aren't statisticians, um, a Z-score is simply a standard deviation divided by the average of your sample. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Um, so we have a few thousand people. There will be some people in that database who are exactly like you, your age, everything else. But then there'll be other people, let's say, you know another 100 people who are the next few decades above and a few hundred people who are the next few decades below in age. And the only thing that changes the brain dramatically is age. So mathematically, we put what's called a regression line through this database of thousands of people and plot you on that line. So you're being compared to an average sort of typical heavily clean brain. But my goal isn't to say, oh, why aren't you average? Let's make you average. Because I don't care that you're not average. I care let's find the ways in which things are sticking up and mm-hmm. you know, where are the sore thumbs and the stats and what do those often mean for people and do those things fit your goals or not that's really what matters not so much what's you know, again, I can't tell what's un- what's good or bad. I can tell what's unusual mm-hmm. in the mapping. And then from there, to some extent, you're the person making the meaning. I'm just teaching you to read the maps. Mm-hmm. And at Peak Brain, we have this policy of never charging for remapping. So you do one map, and then a few months later, if you want more maps, and you see features in your brain become stable over time. You also see things you're doing in your life shift features in your brain, like sleep hacking or nootropics or exercise regimens will s- slowly start to shift things in your brain, so... Mm-hmm.
0: So what are some of the things that can come up in this brain map? Because there's a lot of people listening to this that travel quite a bit. And so I'm imagining chronic jet lag could potentially come up. But what are some of the things that you can observe and say, or what are some of those peaks that you say, hey, what's going on?
1: Yeah. It's all these regulatory features that the the most reliable stuff in brain mapping is stuff that all brains do. Mm -hmm. So features of attention management, Mm -hmm. stress management or anxiety features sometimes, Um, sleep regulation, um, broad stuff like that. So I can often spot, and some of the markers are valid, like the ADHD markers are 94% accurate. The inattentive ADD markers are about 80% accurate, not that accurate. And those are some of the best ones we have. Everything else is more like, oh, hey, here's a a hint. It can mean this. Is that true for you? Like we might see speed of processing issues, for instance, that can be from a lot of causes, but tends to produce brain fog and word finding issues and short-term memory issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see, I've already looked at your brain. I, I'll walk through it systematically with you, but I do see some rain fog. You look kind of wiped out. And it's not just from traveling the past few days before you got here. It looks pretty chronic. Um, some delta waves that are pushing back.
0: Yeah, I think there's a history that we can go through. Yeah. Uh, years in investment banking okay. that probably like, right. contributed to that one. I'm
1: sure. And, and that probably explains the other feature I saw in your brain, which is one of the switching systems being a little bit extra active. Mm-hmm. The posterior cingulate, this thing that tends to scan the environment and know if your behavior is congruent, i.e. safe is a little extra active for you compared to the average person. So your brain's evaluating the environment a little bit more than average.
0: So if I worked in a corporate culture where I was constantly worried about somebody putting the old knife in the back.
1: <laughs> yeah, this this back midline resource is elevated chronically when the environment's dangerous and unpredictable. Interesting. Um, it's elevated briefly when you do something that needs correcting. Like if you drop your phone in the footwell of the car and you're fishing around for it, there's a sense of oh, watch the road because the cingulate threw a flag in the play. It's a fun mm-hmm. behavior environment. were in conflict. And it had you uh, alert to so change your behavior.
0: So just thinking about my own life here, mm-hmm. uh, a history with, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, just a history of like anxiety. That would potentially lead to this situation yeah
1: so again i I would flip it i would say oh hey here's a resource you have a on the back midline of your brain there's a little bit of a hot spot and it's in the posterior cingulate Mm -hmm. and it's about it's only about a standard deviation higher than average not a very large one it's not not a very likely feature but it's there Mm-hmm. And so I'd say, oh, okay, for some people to have a back midline hotspot in beta waves, that means they're evaluating or actually ruminating a little bit, kind mm-hmm. of you know, sitting there and chewing on things.
0: And thinking about what I just said or yeah, all of that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's
1: the dog with a bone kind of phenomenon, but it's very visceral. It has a worry component usually to it and it's the back middle. Okay. The front middle, which for you is actually, doesn't show any excess in beta waves, but does show what we call hypercoherence in beta or overconnectivity in beta. Okay. means that the anterior cingulate, the front cingulate, is a bit overconnected moment to moment, not letting go. And that produces perseveration, okay. mentally being stuck. So back middle is viscerally worried. The front is this thoughts being stuck. Mm-hmm. So when the thought gets ramped, and again, this is overconnected for you. I don't know what it means for you, but I would guess for many people, this can mean things like songs that stuck in your head, being a little OCD, biting your nails, that kind of stuckness of behavior where you you know you don't want to do it, but it's just kind of happening.
0: So songs stuck in the head. If I had like a freak auditory capacity, or what I think of as That's superpower. Just being- yeah, it's sort of the useless superpower now yeah, because yeah. Shazam's come out and everybody can identify the song.
1: Right, right, but right. But now right.
0: I used to be able to just rattle off song lyrics. Okay could that be what I'm talking what we're hearing here or is it something completely different more like dwelling on thought
1: it, it's probably the latter I mean you're probably okay. talking I mean, it may be related you know, the superpower can be also be kryptonite mm-hmm. but this is the evaluator um, okay. this is about your scanning and evaluating the back and the front is about you dis- well, basically the back midline posterior cingulate is deciding what's necessary mm-hmm. the front midline is what is important mm-hmm. so when the front midline gets hot we do things like ooh, is the oven on is the oven on is the oven on we also do things like bite our nails we also do things like i love that person love that person love that person it's the focus being stuck on something internally. it's not necessarily anything else it's the what you're switching to pay what's important mm-hmm. you know the back midline is what is necessary what is starting what's dangerous the front is what, what do i need what is important so it can mean positive and negative and again i can't look at this back midline and go oh you have ptsd i can go oh your back midline's a bit elevated are you look threat it sensitive are you ruminating mm-hmm. you, you might be huh he sounds like you are Okay, next question. That's valid. Next question, is it important? Do you care about it? Do you want to work on it? Mm -hmm. Because it's reliable. you get about two standard deviations there between connectivity markers and amplitude markers. It's reliable to change. Mm -hmm. So give it 20, 30, 40 sessions of neurofeedback for half an hour each, three times a week for three months. And this will be reduced by a couple standard deviations. You will literally feel like your mind is unclenching. You can put down stuff that you don't want to think about whenever you decide to. If you train that down, you can pick right back up if you want to as well. That's the nice thing about neurofeedback. We don't mm-hmm. remove the resource. We unstick it. We don't blanket you with a new state like a drug might. We just, oh, that's stuck. Is that, that stuck? Okay, let's, 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 let's train that under your control now. Mm-hmm. A month or two from now, you would have control over that resource. Other thing we're seeing for you is low power of alpha. It's blue here. So relatively low amounts of the wave that rests.
0: So low power of alpha, even if I am a meditator,
1: Yeah, at rest with your eyes closed, your brain is not making as much alpha waves in the back of the head as the average person. Which means you aren't shutting off your visual system with your eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Your brain's staying a little bit hypervigilant.
0: This is why yesterday when I was going through the process with your team, my eyes were still moving. This is about your brain, actually. Okay.
1: This is your brain learning that if you close your eyes, it better stay ready to process anyways. The world might not, you know... I might want to check out what's happening and you don't necessarily I feel- I might have
0: the tiger on the savannah or whatever it is. Yeah, up. so
1: you, this is hypervigilance sometimes, or at least you, it's hard to downshift internally. Like mm-hmm. you can get ramped up pretty well, but it's hard to find that smooth spot. You seem like a chill guy, but my guess is someone that's practiced versus innate. <laughs> so, um, and then we also see connectivities high in the slow brain waves, deltas and thetas, and the amplitude, the amount is high in delta. Mm-hmm. That usually means a lot of fog and fatigue, burnout. Some of this may be influenced by your acute fatigue, you know, mm-hmm. jet lag, whatever, recently. This is more of a chronic phenomenon. This is a couple of standard deviations of connectivity, two and a half standard deviations, extra delta waves in the back right of your head. Um, this is uh, some brain fog, most likely, potentially an injury spot right there, a concussion. Maybe. So if
0: I had concussions when I was younger, a handful of them. This could be it. Okay.
1: I don't know if it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it is in terms of neurofeedback, but what matters is, oh, this can produce some brain fog, some lack of deep sleep. And some maybe chronic issues filtering auditory information. It's hard to like process always when you get tired auditorily because it's mm-hmm. out of the head. If those things, things seem valid, whether or not it comes from an injury or just the quirky factory model you are, we can go after it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter so much whether I understand what's happened as long as I understand which resources you're walking around with. Okay. Um, this looks like brain fog, valid or not?
0: Yeah. Uh, v- valid to a certain extent. I think okay. there is some environmental influences here. I told you I was at Summit Series all weekend and yeah. that was a little bit of a sleep deprivation. The brain maps are
1: not affected by a few days of that. Interesting. Um, okay. It has to. T- it takes a lot to affect the brain. And the attention test, yes. Okay. And the attention test for you shows some issues in focus and vigilance and mm-hmm. some impulsivity. Broadly, your attention test scores are coming in about one and a half to two standard deviations below average for executive okay. function. You're coming in like 70s and low 70s for how well you can activate your focus, how well you can stay on when things are boring, mm-hmm. and also you know, clicking on the wrong stimuli. So you're about one and a half to two standard deviations, which can be driven by fatigue. Okay. The brain maps are not affected by fatigue unless it's very, very severe.
0: Okay. So chronic fatigue being, you know, the years and years of what I've done to myself. Yeah.
1: And what I've done now is pulled up how fast your brain waves are, which will tell me a little bit about how your brain's operating in terms of sleep. And alpha waves are how fast you think and delta waves are how well you rest. Now alpha waves are running a little bit low here, below one, several places. You know, mm-hmm. start below zero. You know, slower than average. Mm-hmm. That means your internal processing speed feels slow at times. You feel sluggish. When you're tired, you might even be experiencing things like word finding issues and short term memory issues when you're mm-hmm. wiped out. Like oh, I can't. What's that? Like delayed. You know, tip the word of the recall. Yeah. yeah, is that true? Uh, to a certain yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's probably a hint of it. The speed of processing. The Delta is uh, both very, very slow and a few places kind of fast. It's two different phenomena showing up. Delta typically runs around zero, you know, average speeds. Mm -hmm. When you start getting chronic sleep deprivation, it starts to push back and run fast during the day. It's it's browning out Mm micro-sleeping. After years of that, it gives up and stops being produced. It runs very, very slow. Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing is this flipping over from fast into slow. Like you're on the edge of like actually more deep burnout from lack of deep sleep. Interesting. You have a chronic issue in sleep and it looks like it's actually getting worse. Okay.
0: That's, uh, I mean, given that I've focused on it so much in the past couple of years, I wish it was Going the other direction, but happy to.
1: My hunch is this is actually it. at least partially a stress response problem and partially a concussion problem. Okay. And just doing regular sleep hacking things will not affect it. You have to work on the concussion or the anxiety to get rid of the sleep issue. Okay. I think. I, I, chicken and egg, I can't tell what's going on here. But the, I
0: mean, the anxiety makes sense.
1: The anxiety looks like a more significant feature, and the brain fog is a more significant feature than any actually sleep issues. Okay. So I think. As that, a
0: person who like doesn't necessarily. So I do all of the quote unquote hacking things for yeah. brain fog, right? Yeah. Like No grains, no sugars, et yep. cetera. Yep. Fasting, all of that. But this could be something different.
1: Well, this will make a rapid change to the resources. We'll okay. see how, how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely suggest some some sleep hacking things, maybe some okay. things you haven't tried. I, tend to, I find that biohackers often do the thing that, Seems like it will work, but once someone says something's true, people often get the, the wrong information out there. And I really don't like how biohackers are doing intermittent, uh, intermittent fasting. I,
0: I agree with you. So let's explore this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so
1: to eat, the, the best way to eat for your brain is actually to fast in the afternoon and the evening, not mm-hmm. in the morning. Yeah. I mean, you should fast in the morning, first thing in the morning, of course. But mm-hmm. but all the IF and intermittent fasting and time restricted folks, they, they all, many of them anyways, will do things like fast until six or seven and have a big dinner and go to bed. Mm-hmm. Or they'll, you know, eat, well, 10 hours a day or something. I really think the best time to fast is at the end of the day for circadian re- uh, reasons. So the rule of thumb is go to bed hungry and you'll wake up full of energy mm-hmm. and feeling fed. And go to bed full, you wake up hungry and tired. Because um, if you go to bed with any insulin in your system, i.e. calories still being burned uh, or you know absorbed essentially, then you will suppress growth hormone release once you're asleep. If you're mm-hmm. north of about 40, you're not making any other growth hormone except in that two-hour pulse, you're getting about you know, two hours into sleep. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're young enough, you can get away with this. Not put on body fat or have a l- l- lousy sleep, and you can snack up until you go to bed. But if you're you know, 30s and 40s, you can't. And you'll wake up super tired and, you know, get, and have no energy because what's happening is the, the insulin prevents the growth hormone release, which means you don't get yanked down in deep sleep. Mm-hmm. So you end up with like almost no deep sleep, and then after a while, you stop remembering your dreams because you aren't making good deep sleep to consolidate the memories of the dreams, mm-hmm. and it's a vicious cycle. And then you then you start doing things like falling asleep um, rapidly, but not sleeping very deeply. Yep. Uh, you have things like starting to dream the moment you fall asleep, which is kind of a sign that you're not, you're having your are starved for REM. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things going on here suggesting your your delta waves are off. Either kind of persistent, like your brain's having a hard time waking up when it's awake. Generally, that means it's also Having a hard time going all the way deeply asleep. It's a bit yeah. stuck between those two states.
0: And so, here a right protocol would be like early time restrictive feeding, rather than
1: yeah. The so the, the big the big things for um, circadian treatment for food are don't eat before bed at least three four hours. Okay, you know no, no calories for at least three hours. We I mean, have a you know water or herbal tea if you need a ritual or something, but mm-hmm. no um, no calories and then. Um, Fast for a couple hours in the morning as well. Okay. And exercise in the morning before you eat. And keep your morning wake time consistent. I don't care what your bedtime is. Okay. Those are the three big things. The evening fasting is the first one. Morning consistent wake time. And then morning exercise before eating in order of importance. So if yeah. all you have to do is one, just don't snack at night for circadian awesome. stuff.
0: Awesome. So let's we've talked about it a little bit here. Uh, and I do want to come back to the yeah. brain map. maybe sure, I- sure. Never. When we click stop on the record and just ask you a bunch of questions on that. But in the interest of time, sure. Neurofeedback. Yeah. Can we go a little bit into that? Because yesterday your team had me fly dragons with my brain nice. through different loops. And yep. it yep. felt a little bit like the Game of Thrones. Let's interrupt our regularly scheduled programming to talk a little bit about a product and company I'm in love with. And that is the V my particular device is the NeuroAlpha, and let me tell you a little bit about my N of one benefits. Better sleep, better focus and less anxiety when it comes to things like public speaking, and increased ability to really drop into flow. But you can check out their website, which is full of all kinds of scientific articles and research in this world of intranasal photobiomodulation. And if you want to check out a device... We have a little bit of a coupon code for you. You can use the coupon code SUPERHUMAN to get 10% off your purchase. That's V-LIGHT, V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T dot com, and use the code SUPERHUMAN for 10% off. Okay. Can we talk just neurofeedback? And feel guilty? I I didn't really burn some cities. It wasn't quite the last episode of Game of Thrones, but... A lot nice. of flying.
1: So, so um, people often don't understand what we're talking about with neurofeedback. They think you're controlling. Um, the process of neurofeedback is enti- almost entirely involuntary, right? Mm-hmm. You, would, you would probably agree. You were watching a dragon fly across the sky or whatever, and it was steering
0: mm-hmm. in
1: certain directions, and audio was coming and going. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what we're doing is measuring your brain. We had three wires in your head, a couple ear clips, and then one wire on your scalp. And we were measuring two different brainwaves, a theta, or a three actually, but two main ones we were training, theta and low beta called SMR. Mm-hmm. And theta brainwaves, when they're high, is kind of like air on the brake lines of your car. You can't inhibit things. So it's, high, it's like ADHD, poor inhibitory tone, okay. that kind of stuff. And l- a low beta or SMR, when that's high amplitude, it's a, it's a calm state, focused, poised, you know, mentally self-controlled, and the tissue itself is controlled. It's not going to produce seizures or any you know, instability events. Um so SMR training with theta inhibits, a very, very common thing to do in neurofeedback. The field is built on it. You know, when 50 years ago, SMR Mm -hmm. was discovered as a big feature for training.
0: Can you explain SMR?
1: Yeah. So the easiest way to talk about it is to point at cats, because everyone's seen a cat lying on a windowsill watching birds. Mm -hmm. And generally the cat will relax its body deeply and sharpen its gaze. And often make a little noise. A little tip of, tip of the tail is twitching or something. But the body is actually fairly liquid because predators, cats are obligate carnivores. They only eat other animals. They cannot eat, you know, plant matter unless it's part of an animal stomach or something. But mm-hmm. they shouldn't be eating plant matter. Don't feed your cats vegan you diets. It's really, <laughs> really bad for them. Um,
0: you so. just upset half the world, but, that, the, the, but thing, not the listener base. The,
1: the, there we go. Cat, but then cats, ha, dogs eat whatever. Dogs are omnivores. Cats have to have meat. They're mm-hmm. obligate carnivores any obligate carnivore sees a prey animal and will deeply relax instantly with its body, but sharpen its mind because you can leap into action onto the prey much faster if you're relaxed. Mm-hmm. So you trigger involuntary SMR in cats when they see prey animals. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you know, your tabby on the counter is liquid, but watching the birds and jittering, that's SMR. In humans, SMR is sleep spindles or sigma. And there's a bunch of stuff. We're not Carnivores, the same way. We don't have the same deep relaxation tone. We do have the same SMR effect in our muscles, in our, our motoric system. Um, you may have uh, watched Temple Grandin's TED Talk on, uh, she's an autistic scientist who um, discovered that the cow squeezing machines they use to, pacify the cows before slaughter, also mm-hmm. feel really good. And this is actually known from, I, when I was working in group homes for years, we used to do deep tissue pressure because it made very calming events happen mm-hmm. to these people. Use heavy pillows and, you know, or, or weighted blankets for them. They okay. feel really good. It feels very calming. Mm-hmm. And the reason is constraining your body causes SMR. Okay. So if you squeeze somebody and they relax deeply, like a, like a kid, that's the SMR state, being very held very tightly. Humans do SMR to keep us asleep when we're asleep to resist seizure states and instability events in our brain. So Dr. Sturman, um, Dr. Barry Sturman, UCLA in 1967, was working with cats. Here's cats again. And NASA asked him to examine how dangerous rocket fuel vapors were because our astronauts were getting sick and experiencing some things. And he started testing vapor exposure on cats. And of the 32 cats, he was testing a handful, about a quarter of them refused to have seizures and needed two, three times the exposure to show the same instability event. So 24 cats having seizures at like 45 to 60 minutes and eight cats not having seizures at 120 minutes. Like Mm -hmm. couldn't figure out why one group was completely seizure resistant until very late in the process. And one group was showing all the classic dose dependent, uh, all the classic dose dependent curve sort of events until he realized he'd used these, these seizure, you know, superhero cats, seizure resistant cats in another experiment months before to see if whenever their SMR waves climbed on their own, if he squirted chicken broth into the mouth, if it increased the amplitude the next day. And so he trained up their SMR a little bit, proved it could be trained with operant conditioning, shaping the brain's behavior, Mm -hmm. rewarding things you want to happen more. And yes, it could make a change. And months later, these cats were seizure resistant. So his next step, his lab manager was an epileptic who was not well controlled on medication. They went through all of her data and uh, created a machine for her. And she went off all of her meds over the next couple of years and remained seizure-free. And that was the start of the field in the late 60s around SMR. Mm -hmm. Now we know SMR training generally eliminates ADHD because the calm cat who's motorically still and mentally focused is the opposite of ADHD, who's motorically fidgety and mentally bouncing all around. Literally, your calm cat in the windowsill is the opposite brain state of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Between up SMR, you eliminate ADHD in almost everybody. For classic adhd mm-hmm. within a handful of sessions like you know a few months um, 30 40 sessions is almost always reliable for a few standard deviations of change against wow. the population it's incredible and you know permanent change for adhd and things i mean other stuff autism is never a a, a fully done process for many people mm-hmm. you continue to work on the brain because there's lots of stuff going on or schizophrenia you're never done mm-hmm. or you know other things that are ongoing disease processes or things that are pushing back But anxiety, stress, sleep, attention, mood, even severe stuff like PTSD and OCD often stay resolved in a few months of training.
0: So anxiety, sleep, a lot of people listening to this, sleep, stress, nutrition are kind of top of mind issues, right? And so these, you mentioned 30 to 40 sessions, Mm -hmm. you can start to see- Increase if we're going to set up measurement tools, you can use like your aura ring. I yeah. guess there are some issues. You're with not that.
1: 30 sessions in to start to see, you're mm-hmm. about three to five sessions in
0: to start, That's pretty incredible. To start noticing things.
1: You, okay. you, you feel it usually, people feel it by the end of the second week, which is mm-hmm. six sessions in. Almost everybody, I would say, 10% of people feel it the first or second time. About 10% don't really feel it until you're like the end of the first month, a dozen mm-hmm. sessions, and like, yeah, I kind of feel something. How's your sleep? Oh, actually, I've slept really well all month. They just don't uh, notice the, the, the changes day to day, but they are getting the same resource shifts.
0: Because I did the one session yesterday. Yeah. and slept pretty damn well last you night. You might
1: be sensitive. That's why we yeah. do a short session. We did a 21-minute session for you. Mm-hmm. Today, if we have time, I'll give you a full 30-minute session just to give a push and see what happens. And mm-hmm. tonight, if you sleep extra well again, then we start going, oh, okay, you might be sensitive. Or sometimes, if you're lucky, this SMR protocol, we often start with this one. Um, Will produce the windshield wiper like fairy. You walk out of the office, you're like, "Oh my god, the world's crisp and clear and bright and calm. What's going on?" It's like <laughs> if like are giving you new glasses. You're like, "What the heck?" And people mm-hmm. rush back in sometimes. What, what am I experiencing? This is amazing. If you get that first lift, the first crack in the brain fog, or the first drop in the distractibility, it can feel incredible, and it is it is subjectively felt. Mm-hmm. And then we go back and map your brain and measure your attention every 20 sessions of neurofeedback. Right? Okay, so we're doing at least two cycles, usually three cycles of that. You know, 40 to 60 sessions, mm-hmm. and I can often make. Uh, for ADHD, people come in with three to four standard deviations of you know of, of performance impairments and brain map you know out of range issues, if you will, and they typically do four months of training and are above average when they leave, and it's permanent. So it's we eliminate amazing. it and get them above their above a typical baseline, typically in general for the mm-hmm. average person. So
0: operant conditioning. Yeah, uh, you mentioned it briefly, and yeah. just want to kind of double click on that. Sure. How would you explain it other than it's just those are are those the dings that I hear yeah. when I'm flying my Optic dragon. Conditioning
1: is rewarding or applauding certain things the organism is doing so it can do more of that. Like, mm-hmm. um, this is not Pavlov's dog. We are not taking something that your brain doesn't do, like a bell or a light, and something it does do, like salivating and making them together. That's mm-hmm. not what we're doing. We're taking stuff your brain already does and making it do more or less of that. So this is Skinner's pigeons. Skinner was uh, Skinner and Pavlov, the two conditioning yeah. guys. And Skinner had pigeons, Skinnerian conditioning, this is called, or associate, this is a form of associative learning. Mm-hmm. All learning is associative learning, really. But what we're doing is we're, you know, pit, Skinner put pigeons in a, in a box and wanted them to peck three times in a certain pattern. Pigeons already peck. Mm-hmm. So to get pigeons to peck three times, the first day, when they get near the lever, you give them a pebble of food but the next day at the peck on it, at least once. In the third day, it's three times. And you shape, progressively reward successive approximations. Mm-hmm. And any learning system, any organism, any brain sets of cells will, will learn this way. You can approximate. If you provide a feedback signal, a reward, the brain finds interesting. And in the case of neurofeedback, if we only ding, 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 and make the dragon fly in some directions, when your brain drops its theta and raises its SMR, whenever the brain happens to move in the wrong direction, if we withhold the applause, the the dragon stops flying in a straight line and the dings go away. The brain's like, hey, I was watching that. Where'd that information go? The brain happens to move in the right direction. The software goes, yay, Mm -hmm. good job, brain. And it's reinforced. Now The the operant conditioning part is every few seconds, we move the goalposts. So we're plotting a trend the brain might be on or not applauding a trend it's already on. Mm -hmm. You can't really feel it in the session. You can't control it. What usually happens after a few sessions is tomorrow your brain does more of what produced the extra input today. Awesome. You feel that. Mm -hmm. Your sleep, your stress, your tension shifts subtly and you go, ooh, I felt this. And then it wears off the next day. But if it's the right thing, we do it again and it builds the resource. After a handful of sessions, you have much more access to it. After a couple dozen sessions, it's permanent access.
0: That's amazing. People are listening to this and asking what's the downside. Yeah. And I've heard anecdotally of some of your experiments uh, with yourself and things that you can Potentially do. Yeah. Are there are there downsides to neurofeedback? Sure. And you know Yeah. I would love to hear some of the experiments. I mean, I mean, I
1: mean yes, there's there's downsides, but mostly it's in the sort of vein of personal training. If you go and work out the wrong way at the gym, mm-hmm. you know, like you'll so you want you want pectoral muscles. Okay, great. Here's your chest press workout today. And tomorrow you come in like, guys, I can't lift my arms above my shoulders. Like I can't move.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, sorry, we worked you out a little hard. No. Let's back off on that machine today, or let's see you know, be iterative. That's the trick in neurofeedback, is, mm-hmm. is not exactly knowing what will happen. So if you ignore the side effects, like I've had, I had a client, um, when I was working for somebody else, a client came in, had done uh, this eight-year-old boy, his mother had found a neurofeedback provider, gotten the system, gotten one protocol, and then 80 sessions in a row. He went from moderately autistic back to profoundly autistic, lost his language, lost his eye contact, started screaming all the time when he'd been, you know, okay as an eight-year-old, but having some needs. And she was beside herself. She didn't understand that neurofeedback isn't one thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, can you hurt yourself going to work out at the gym? Absolutely. Can you also transform your life profoundly? Absolutely. It, if you do the wrong workout and ignore the effects, you'll get into trouble. Yeah. It's a little self-limiting, though. Just like you wouldn't continue to get hurt in the gym. You'd stop doing it. If your anxiety gets spiked, your sleep gets thrown off again and again and again, and neurofeedback, you don't keep doing it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And bad practitioners just lose clients that way. Good practitioners go, oh, This protocol made you feel super focused yesterday, but then you couldn't fall asleep? Oh, okay. Let's back off on frequency. How'd that feel? Ooh, you were focused and you could fall asleep? Great. We just dialed it in. Mm -hmm. And so I really do rely on a lot of feedback, no pun intended, from the clients telling what's happening day to day. So we do this gentle push for half an hour, and then Mm -hmm. you have a subtle unfolding of the effect for about 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we have you fill out surveys on what's happening, in your sleep, your stress, your mood, your attention. So that when you come back in a couple days later, we go, oh. The protocol last Thursday seemed to work, right? You feel pretty good? Great, let's do it again. Okay. But if we ignore the side effects, you could get more and more and more and more anxious, more and more spacey, more and more burnt out. Um, and so, yes, you have to kind of be on top of the process and watch what's happening, or you can produce the wrong shifts and resources.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about some of these technologies that exist right now. Mm, and sure. And we can go through a handful of them. Slammin. I know we have why don't we just start with something like the Muse, right? Yeah. And, you know, the Muse biofeedback meditation head- headband. Yeah. What what are your opinions on, we'll start there, and then I have a few other ones that I'll sure. ask you about.
1: Um, I think it's a bit of a consumer device, and I think it's a bit vaporware, actually. I mean, I, I don't really think it's doing neurofeedback. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of reasons why. I think a device like the Muse is useful to look back at session data and figure out what your brainwaves were doing later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't love where the Muse is measuring. I think most of the places you want to measure for most of these things is actually the strip of tissue that runs ear to ear. That's where SMR is measured. And the Muse is measuring forehead. And that's just a noisy place to measure. It's not near the parts of the brain you want to measure for most things. And unfortunately, these dry sensor devices like the Muse, and there's several out there, but the dry sensor devices use rubberized um, you know, sensors, electrodes. But they're picking up tons of noise, especially in the forehead where there's muscle tension, huge mm-hmm. amounts of noise. And if you want to filter out noise in the frequency range, i.e. high frequency muscles out of the brain waves, you break the timing relationship of the signal. So you get noise signals off the head, you filter them. By the time you're done filtering them, the time relationship of the signal is not related to what the brain just did. You've broken mm-hmm. the, the time relationship. You can't give feedback on the signal to tell someone that they're doing something in real time if you've broken the signal processing. Mm-hmm. So... Essentially, you can't do neurofeedback with dry electrodes because the sampling is too aggressive. Mm-hmm. The, the filtering is too aggressive to, um, to make the, time, the timing work. If you have jitter in the time, coupling of the brain to the, to the system, the, the learning process fails. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, again, I hate where those most consumer devices are measuring the head. It really should be in the front, mid- uh, on the ear to ear, not the forehead. Okay. But everyone's taking engineering. You know, it's easy to measure the forehead, so that's what I go after. Okay. So I think it's a it's it's a device that's unfortunately too expensive for what you're getting from it. I'd rather spend twice as much money and get real neurofeedback devices and start using them. Mm-hmm. Honestly.
0: So there's other technologies or experiences out there that promise a profound Zen experience in seven days. Yeah. What do you feel about these?
1: There's nothing special. Okay. With um, any of these profound, like five to seven days, most of them are five days now. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, where you accomplish and theoretically accomplish meditation states and meditation learning. But the neurofeedback they're doing, and I'll I'll name brands. I mean, if we're talking about BioCybernaut or Four Years of Zen, they're basically the same program. Uh, James Hart, Dr. Hart would disagree that the same program as would Dave Asprey. Yeah. But from my perspective, they're pretty much the same technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I believe that it, all we're doing, working with here is uh, alpha synchrony, alpha coherence training, alpha theta training, which are very deep, powerful techniques in the field. Some of the best stuff we do in terms of peak performance and flow state. But the brain doesn't change in five or six days. You may have an experience. If I made you do a, do a sweat, lodge days, sweat lodge for five days or a you know, sun dance or do ayahuasca, you'd have an experience, but you wouldn't be any different necessarily two weeks later mm-hmm. unless you decided to integrate the lessons you learned during the experience, the cognitive thing. So maybe you'll have a hypnagogic state experience or a creativity burst or something during alpha theta or alpha synchrony, but you haven't taught the brain to get there. If you want to get that, I'll I'll teach you that your brain do that over a few months, and at the end of that process, you'll have reliable access to flow state.
0: So the integration aspect is just completely. Messy. It just
1: takes more than five or six or seven or ten sessions for change. Mm-hmm. It takes about a month minimum for a neurofeedback change generally, mm-hmm. and there's just not enough training in there. So we have a program that we can build an exact same you know alpha synchrony, alpha coherence If you want to, and we get you set up for training for up to a year for it's between a third and a quarter of their one-week prices on their programs. Mm-hmm. So we feel that neurofeedback should be done over time. It takes 40, 50, 60 sessions to make really big shifts. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no reason to charge fifteen or $20,000 for a week of neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. If you want to spend half that much money, I'll get you set up with your own hardware and software and remote mentoring. You can train yourself and your family for a year. Yeah. And, and, and pay less than half of that money.
0: And I'm going to talk to you about that yeah. later. So. Uh, the, okay, let's skip one of these and go into psychedelics, nootropics. Yeah. The impact on the brain. How do you look at that in terms of, is it worth it? Is it, can you just get a better effect out of neurofeedback? What do you feel?
1: In terms of psychedelics, I don't have a good answer. I -hmm. have clients coming in who do one of two things. They come back after having done massive dosing. Yeah. After ayahuasca events or whatever they're doing, they're burning man, you know, 10 day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have clients that microdose. And the macro dosing folks that are sober show no brain changes later on. Okay. The microdosing folks that are chronically using it, I can't tell what's happening because their brains aren't clean enough for me to tell what them versus not them, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no good sense there. Nootropics, I've done a fair amount of actually brain mapping on. So I've done a bunch of little small little in-house studies looking at the QEG and the attention testing. I mean, I used to work for TrueBrain. I helped uh, found uh, TrueBrain's uh, nootropic stack. Mm-hmm. And I designed all the initial uh, uh, blends. And when we were designing them, we had all of our college interns you know, take them and check their brain activity. We had all kinds of interesting self experimentation going on. We brought in Sang the big trading, uh, train the traders company in New York mm-hmm. City. And those guys, we had 15, 20 of those guys doing simulated trading. With new, true brain in their system, when doing brain mapping, looking at you know effects of uh, activation states and things. So over the past few years, I have some other nootropic partners. I can't name names because I'm not sure they want me to talk about this. But um, I've looked at the brain activity effects of several different compounds in the field, mm-hmm. and um, Is there I have one very, that
0: works better than compounds wise.
1: There's no no one compound that works better. There are some blends that seem to be a little bit less aggressive or work better for more people. Mm -hmm. But I think nootropics are about dialing in what works for you. I also think nootropics are a risky thing because many people think that nootropics are all the smart drugs. And I'm much more a fan of people dialing in only the nutritive things, not the drug things that have side effects. I don't believe the word nootropic should apply to anything with a side effect. So even caffeine is not not a nootropic, you know, honestly. But L tyrosine probably is. And so is magnesium. And so is, you know, DHA. So Mm -hmm. is. you know, paracetam. I'm a big fan of the racetam class because mm-hmm. they're relatively side effect free. Um, I also think that I have many friends that develop nootropic compounds and have companies and I think many of my colleagues are putting too much stuff in their products. Mm-hmm. There's too many things and they're too strong for some people or, you know, people I don't respect as much, who I have a few of those in the field, will fairy dust, you know, 17,000 things just to get a name, you know, on the label. Uh, I, I, I think nootropics are a, a bit of a wild west. It's why I created TrueBrain uh, with, with Chris Thompson, but um, I also think from the perspective of neurofeedback and meditation and uh, edu- and uh, mindfulness and nutrition, you should be doing all the foundational things first. And so people yeah. want to do nootropics off. And I'm like, great, let's talk about those things month two, month three. Once we've really shored up all the big, broad things, know what's moving, know what we're getting. Then we can, if you need to be on stage or public speaking, or you want to have a specific strategy or an anti-aging strategy, let's dial something in mm-hmm. strategically and smartly. Not just throw everything at you to get a shift subjectively. I'd rather create a permanent change
0: mm-hmm. with,
1: with uh, neurofeedback and mindfulness.
0: Many people are listening to this and this may not be able to make it to Culver City right away. What are some
1: lifestyle? Yeah. modifications that people can do in their everyday life to start training their brain better? Sure. Well, there's lots of things you can, you can do and there's many things you probably should do. Um, I mean, mindfulness and meditation is among the easiest things to do and do it routinely. It takes mm-hmm. some practice and some effort, but you're carrying on the gear with it all the time. You can do it whenever you want. And so I really encourage folks to develop a you know, 10, 15 minute meditation practice every morning. You really mm-hmm. should have that. Um, beyond that, some of the obvious stuff we know to be true, You know, drop all the sugar out of your diet up the the good quality fats stuff like that Mm -hmm. and then sleep protect your sleep and there's some sleep hacking tricks that are really important not eating before bed super important uh exercise in the morning before you eat for circadian sort of re-entrainment and keep a nice consistent uh wake time seven days a week roughly uh those are really good things for circadian improvement and then you can do next level things that are you know more interventions like sauna or ice bath cycling are pretty powerful for your driving cortisol down over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we have a meditation tutorial I think on the website under our free classes link so you can dig it up there. Okay. Uh, folks can also come visit us in uh, all over the world. We have offices in uh, so well, currently in Orange County uh, down Newport Beach and we're in Culver City now. We've got a big office in St. Louis, a small office in Malmo, Sweden, a small office in London. So you can come to Copenhagen
0: as well, right?
1: Yeah, right across the water from Malmo. You okay. actually have more presence in Malmo than Copenhagen. Okay. I have families all over Copenhagen training uh, and a small you know, business They go across there. the bridge. Yeah, yeah it's just, it's just, it's a, you've been over there. It's an amazing yeah, bridge. Uh, for folks that haven't seen it, it's a great bridge. This, this, this train runs across. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's about a, maybe it's about an eight mile or something across the water there, halfway across the ocean from. Malmo, Sweden to Copenhagen, the train dives underneath the ocean on an island. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's it's a cool little community there. But many people live in Malmo and work in Copenhagen and vice versa because mm-hmm. it's a you know, it's right tight. Um, we have a lot of southern sort of Scandinavian uh, people training, but most of them are home trainers, athletes, executives, biohackers training themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't actually have a physical office. What I have is a brain mapping assessment station in Southern Sweden there. Okay. Um, and we also have a in, we're in LMS Wellness in, in Chelsea in London, which is a high, posh sort of high end. Uh, biohacking Center, folks can get their brain mapped.
0: So uh, I can go get my brain mapped in Malmo, London, wherever I am in Europe. Yep.
1: Or co- it's in Irish California, Canada. Costa Mesa, Cal- you know, Culver City, St. Louis. Plus, I have a few other partners in other places in the country. So awesome. And then, if you want to do training, we'll get you set up with your own gear and send you home and you know, work with you remotely for the first year.
0: Beautiful. So I want to transition now into sort of the final rapid fire questions. Sure. And let's start with the book. That has most significantly impacted your life and how you perform in it.
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure that uh, I have a sort of you know scientific or research answer. Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 it, it, I have to say uh, probably something by Jack Cornfield would be in my okay. you know have would, would be in one of those answers. You know, one of those books. What were the collected things that Jack's put together? Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein wrote a book, uh, Wisdom of the Ancient Masters, I think, which is like a chapter from each of their teachers across mm-hmm. the world and talking about different Buddhist and perspectives. So I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, neuroscientist, but the more deep I get into science, the more deep I get into spirituality, the more those two things seem to converge. I'm a, you know, an atheist Buddhist, basically, that has a very deeply spiritual bent. Um, Sounds familiar. You know, yeah, a lot of that seems to be happening. But to me, that, that probably has had more of an impact on how I practice my day-to-day how I carry myself and mm-hmm. those sort of things than actually any, you know, educational book. So,
0: favorite piece of technology you've purchased in the past year. This could be across anything. It doesn't have to be
1: directly yeah. related. Um I, ha- I in the past year I got a really nice chest freezer to put my cow in when I when I buy large amounts of cows. That's great. Yeah, I get grass-fed cow, you know, from a farmer delivered, you know, quarter mm-hmm. cow at a time, you know, a couple times a year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nice cheap freezer. Really, is a nice life hack. So. Yeah,
0: I need one of those for for Europe because our European refrigerators, as I'm sure you've experienced, are the freezers quite underwhelming. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. How do you unwind?
1: Um, I do a lot of Ashtanga yoga. I really. Wind, I, I start off my day with yoga generally, mm-hmm. um, so I tend to unwind before I before I have to deal with anything. Okay, and then I try to just maintain a pretty even tone. Um, I'm actually, you know, I used to handle, I used to carry a lot more stress, and you know. Things that I that I do now, pretty dialed in. I mean, I do a lot of neurofeedback, yoga, meditation over the past, especially in the past five years since running Peak Brain. And I you know, walk my talk. And yeah. you see my staff; you, you may have noticed all my twenty-something staff seem like they're like ninety-year-old meditators. They're all kind and calm and low-key and have good listening skills. It's a
0: great atmosphere.
1: <laughs> you, know, you walk into Equinox; everyone has their abs hanging out, and here everyone has their like good listening skills hanging out. You know, mm-hmm. It's kind of because this is what they work on—is their Inhibitory tone and, and calmness and laser-like focus and creativity. So it's nice to be able to pr- provide that, you know, sort of pro, uh, you know, brain health community here. So excellent,
0: Doctor Hill. Thank you so much for my taking pleasure. The time. It's been absolute pleasure.
1: Oh no, I enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: All right, superhumans. I told you that one was going to get a little bit vulnerable for me. Little did I know that Andrew was going to bring up a concussion that I haven't really paid attention to for decades. I'll link to my brain mapping report in the show notes, which are decoding superhuman.com slash peak brain. If you enjoyed this episode, you head on over to iTunes and leave us a five star rating. The goal is really to get more ears listening to the show. We're a top 100 business and careers podcast in four different countries. And I would love to see us return to a top 100 business and careers podcast in the United States. So please leave a rating, leave some love and share it on all the social medias. I love you guys. Have an epic day.